Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at If we could, go ahead and dismiss three and five-year-olds. Uh, they're going to head over to their class. And for the rest of us, if you've got your Bible, if you could, go ahead and grab those as well. We're going to be in Luke 1, 46 through 56 this morning. And uh, as you're turning there, uh, I'm going to do what, what a lot of times they say not to do. Um, but I'm going to try to practice uh, what one of our guest speakers shared just a couple of weeks ago in Psalm 42. Um, just the, the art of... Uh, just expressing amongst the body, kind of collectively, um, uh, just suffering and and just kind of what you what you feel that you're experiencing. And um, I think I don't know if it's you guys. I mean, I just know it for me personally. Like, does it feel heavy? Like in here this morning? Like I I just I feel heavy, and and I know a lot of that is it's just been a season of just heaviness. Um, for me personally, uh, and just also I know for our leadership as well, um, and, and, and I think I, what I feel I should do is, is try to mask it and try to kind of come up here and just be like, all right, let's, let's get things going on a good note, and, um, but, but what I discern to be more wise is, is just to be honest, um, that like I'm just struggling, like I'm just struggling, and um, like, I tried to unplug this week, and, you know, I even got, like, a little notification in the back. It was like, your phone was, like, down 70% in activity this week. And I was like, oh, amazing. Um, but at the same time, it was like, what I thought would maybe solve the issue was just literally unplugging from the phone. Like, at the same time, I just, I feel anxious, and I feel trembling um, in spirit. And I know a lot of that is also, you know, kind of attached to... Um, for those who don't know, I was involved, like I was in the middle of a shooting downtown uh, just a couple of weeks ago as well, and that kind of stirred up for me like eight months ago, like being involved in a mugging, and you know, three years ago being involved in a stabbing just outside my neighborhood, and um, like those things just don't like go away overnight. I mean, like it, it, it's something that you really deal with, and it causes like just ripple effects of, of study habits and and where your mind wanders, and, and, and then little things become big things, and it's just heavy, and um, it's Father's Day, and I'm here by myself, and because my family's just at home sick, and it's like, that, that would normally just be a little thing, but at the same time, like, just today, it feels heavy. Um, and so, I just want to get that out, because I know that um, it's going to reflect in how I preach this morning. Um, and so, like, you know, if I'm not, you know, telling jokes or uh, whatever it looks like, I, I just want you to know where I'm at and kind of what I'm processing through and that I'm just feeling a deep anxiety that I've just never felt. And so, uh, we're just going to take a moment <laughs> and just pray and then... Um, We'll see what the Lord has for us this morning. Father, we know that you are good. And we know that you are gracious. 
We know that you are merciful and that you are kind and loving and generous and that you are a protector and that you are the father of all fathers. And Lord, we know that what happens in these gatherings is nothing that's based on the intellect of our leaders. It's not based on how we, how we look, how we dress, what we sing or how we sing it, but it's ultimately based on your spirit and your spirit gathering us together and your spirit pointing us to Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that that's exactly what we do in this moment now, is that we just center our minds and our hearts and our worry. We center it on Jesus so that maybe our worry might turn to worship. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, as we continue in Luke 1, looking at verses 46 through 56, What we're going to be doing today is we're going to be continuing to get to know Mary, a woman who lives uh, her her life in relationship with God. And as a result, uh, she's a great example for us. She really is. And today she sings a song, um, a song that has ministered to my soul as I prepared this, as I've just been meditating on it, as I've been just reading it daily. And what she sings this morning, what she says is foundationally important for just our understanding of God, um, especially God as a father. And so as, you, as we kind of walk through this, um, what, what you're going to see is her moving from worry to worship. And, and obviously this is how it's all structured, is, is me just working this out also in my life. Um, but worry to worship, and just some attributes that she just praises God and is just in her worship is just expressing out of of a true theology a true understanding of of the kind of God that we serve the kind of father that we are submitting to the kind of father that we are are trusting to to provide for us and to care for us and to love us and so she she is really providing for us um, what we need in order to understand and worship God rightly to be able to know him, to be able to love him, to be able to cherish him, to be able to treasure him for who he truly is. And there's really two approaches to life. And I'm going to say this is kind of like a preface leading into it. There's two approaches to life. One is what I'm going to just refer to as kind of a bottom-up approach. And a bottom-up approach is, is you filter everything through your personal experience. You filter everything through your circumstances or your resources or what you, what you experience, what you have. Um, and so if you have little, then that might be processed in a projecting on God that God doesn't love me and he doesn't bless me. He doesn't take care of me. He doesn't provide for me because I have very little. Or if your experiences are very um, anxious experiences or uh, circumstances, like I know mine seem to be kind of high level, like, you know, not even once in a lifetime type of things for most people. Um, but, but not necessarily everybody experiences like stabbings and muggings and shootings. But at the same time, people do experience real life 
um, issues on a daily basis, real life pressures, uh, where it might be um, not having enough money at the end of the month, or it might be having relational strife within friendships that you have. It, it, it might be experiencing other people demeaning you or belittling you in a workplace, or, or uh, it might be dealing with um, a business or an organization that is struggling and suffering, and you're kind of caught in the middle trying to figure out how to help support it and whatever it might look like. Like there's, there's daily circumstances that put on us pressure and anxieties as well. And if we have a bottom-up approach, we're projecting all of those things on God's ultimate love and care for us. And so when things aren't going well, we feel as though God is distant and that He's far and that He doesn't care and He doesn't love and He's not taking care of us and He's not providing for us and He's, he's not good. But when things are going well, we then believe that God is loving and is caring and is providing for us and is doing those things for us that He has ultimately promised when all of our circumstances are easy. And, and what we're kind of saying in that is, is we want that kind of life where our need for God is actually void. Like we want the kind of life that doesn't need God, that doesn't depend on God. But oftentimes what we actually find ourselves in is in a life where there are experiences and things that we walk through where it reveals the fact that we are dependent upon God and that we do need God to meet us in the weakness of this world, to meet us in the weakness of our lives. And that then talks about the, the, the top-down approach. The top-down approach is, is filtering all of our life through what God says we're going to experience. And what God ultimately says throughout the entire Bible, what we're going to experience is the collateral damage of our sin. Like, we broke everything that was perfect, good, and holy. And because we broke it and fractured it, there is going to be collateral damage. There's going to be damage and brokenness in relationships. There's going to be uh, brokenness in your finances, brokenness in your um, work, in your career. Like you're not going to be the perfect employee. You're not going to be the perfect boss. You're not going to do things perfectly. There's going to be strife. There's going to be times where you have to let people go. There's going to be times that you're let go. Like there's going to be issues that we walk through on a daily basis. And that's God telling us this is the mess that you've created. He did not give us this mess. Our sin created this mess. And so we're living in the mess, and we don't project that onto God, but rather we then look to God and say, can you help fix the mess? And God then, again, through the Bible, tells us how he's going to fix the mess. And that then moves us from worry to worship because we begin to see how God actually works and moves in the mess to redeem and restore and renew and make all things new so that we begin to move out of placing hope and trust in this world around us, but placing hope and trust in a God who is good and gracious and merciful by not just wiping it all out, but rather by redeeming it, sending his son Jesus to do what his son Jesus does. And that is to save and to redeem and to restore. And that's not just a, a future consummation of all things. That's a part of it. Like there will be a day where there are no more tears and there's no more pain and there's no more anxiety and there's no more depression. And there's no more of any of those things. But there is a process now where he is restoring those things. So that even though the circumstances might not change, he doesn't promise that. 
what he does promise is that in those moments, we can, we can move from worrying to worship and we can have our anxieties be restored to where we experience peace and we experience comfort and we experience joy so that in all circumstances we can rejoice and not be in despair. And so that's a top-down approach. And what I believe Mary is sharing with us today is a top-down approach. She's viewing her circumstance as a top-down approach. And I believe this is good for us to be able to see and to be able to understand as we walk through this. To be able to replace worry with worship. The first thing Mary says, starting in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. So what she's starting to do right here in, in her in the context of going to meet Elizabeth, her cousin, who's also pregnant with John the Baptist. Um, she's going to celebrate together with Elizabeth her pregnancy of her announcement of, of Jesus, the Savior, um, being supernaturally impregnated in her via way of the Holy Spirit. If you weren't here for that, that was a few weeks ago. Um, go back and listen to that one. Um, but, but this is her, in this context, beginning to worship Despite the fact that in her circumstances, it could really go a, a ton of different ways, all right? She's not yet married and has found herself pregnant, and within the public eye is, is a no-no. And, 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 and not only that, but also a biblical no-no. And so she could be worrying that, hey, if, if the word gets out and they realize that I'm not pregnant, what they're not going to call me is, quote-unquote, blessed, but what they are going to call me is an adulteress and a harlot. And there were reason for the people to drag her out into the public square and to strip her and, and to put her in front of everybody as a symbol of, 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 of sin, ultimately, of, of what you don't do. And so there should be reason for her to worry, but instead of worrying, what she does is she moves to worship because she knows that this is God's plan for her. This is God's plan. And so one thing that I want to understand first as we move through this is what is the difference between worship and idolatry? In order to understand what she is doing here. What she is doing. She's worshiping. We were all made to worship. Every single one of us. We are creatures of worship. What that means is that we spend every single day. Our energy, our time, and our resources. Towards something or someone. We, we, are, we are designed not to keep within us. The expression of what we are experiencing, but rather we are to express it and get it out, and that is worship. And so, for example, I've used this before, so it's not going to be a shock. If you've, um, well, not, not everyone in here are carnivores like me, but um, if you love steak and you eat a good steak, um, in that moment of eating a good steak, that, that feeling that you have of this is so good is an expression of worship. Because you usually tell somebody, right? You tell someone how good this is or you recommend a restaurant that they should go, that they have the best steak that you should go and try uh, or, or whatever it might be. Songs, all right? You do that with songs. Movies, we do that with movies. Like we, we evangelize what we experience and we express it by telling others you need to experience this as well. Like that is a form of worship. 
All right, like sporting events are, are literally worship gatherings. All right, everyone gets together and they're team so and so. Like here, we're team Jesus. If you go to a Colts game, you're team Colts. And so you're, you're painting up, you're dressing up, you're getting around other like minded people. And everyone is centered around this sporting event that is happening, this football game that is happening. And whenever a play is done well, we rejoice and we celebrate. Now, I don't celebrate with the Colts. I'm a Cowboys fan, so I rarely get to celebrate, but, um, but it's just a reality. And so it, it is a worshipful experience. We're expressing something. And what the Bible tells us is, is that we were designed to express gratitude, thankfulness, worship to God for what He has created. So everything in creation was created to be good. Food was created to be good. Sex was created to be good. Like um, uh, working, careers were created to be good. Like cultivate the ground. Like work it. Like that was a command given to Adam and Eve within the garden. Like those are good things. Relationships are good things. But when we put those things as the God thing, we begin worshiping those things, that moves us into idolatry. Worshiping creation rather than creator. And that's where we begin to kind of flip the script. And that's where you begin working bottom up rather than top down. And what Mary's doing here is she's helping categorize for us how we can flip that. Because if you focus on worshiping money, worshiping food, worshiping relationships, those things never, never satisfy the demand of your worship. Because what happens when you eat something that was great and you worship and you're like, that was fantastic. And then it ends. And then you're like, I need more. And then you start to get into the idea of gluttony. You just keep eating and keep eating and you keep eating. It was never meant to actually satisfy the deepest levels of our soul. Same thing with movies, same thing with music, same things with relationships. Like if you worship a relationship, and I'm not just talking about husband and wife, boyfriend, girlfriend. I'm talking about even friendships. If you worship friendship and you're demanding of them what you should ultimately be relying on and trusting from the Lord, then all of a sudden this person is going to be crushed under the weight of your expectation of what they should be for you. It's crushing because they were never meant to be the, the, the object of your worship. God is. God is the only being that we can worship and expect provision from that he never crushes under that weight. Never. He's God. He's infinite. We are finite. Like with God, we can literally walk with him anywhere and everywhere. No one in this room, I don't care how many times you're like, call me at 3 a.m., I'll be there. Like, no. It, if you call me at 3 a.m., like, because our phones have this, like, do not disturb now, it's probably, I'm not going to be disturbed. All right? Like, it's just, now, I mean, if, if luckily you catch me on one of those mornings where I've had a nightmare or something and I'm awake and I just can't, like, maybe then I'll come help you change your tire. But all, at the same time, why are you out at 3 a.m.? Like, go home and go to sleep. But like we're not omnipresent. We can't be everywhere with everyone at every time in our fullness. That's God. That's who He is. God is our perfect friend. Don't put that weight 
on others. Doesn't mean we shouldn't have expectations of one another, but right categorized expectations. So what Mary does here is she moves from worrying to worship. She moves from um, kind of bottom up. I mean, she has every right to be concerned, right? Like she has every, I've never been pregnant before. How do I take care of a child? Not only do I, should I take care of a child, but it's God. How do I train up him in his own way? Like, how, how do you do that? She's, I don't know. She's at the same time, she's, she's a young girl, like barely high school age. And yet is taking on this weight and this responsibility. We know she's poor. She's from a small rural town, not a ton of resources. How am I going to feed them? How am I going to take care of them? At the same time, Joseph, he's freaking out. Like, how did she get pregnant? Like, Joseph did it right. Like, he was waiting. <laughs> how did she get pregnant? He, so, should I divorce her? He's not at this point on the same level of faith as her at this point. Like he's, he's still struggling and trying to figure this out himself. Should I? And, and, and at this time, the, when I say divorce, they're not married yet, but they're betrothed, which is a deeper level of, it, of what we call engagement here to where it was actually a legally binding thing. You will marry this person. And so in order to actually break off a betrothal, you do have to give a certificate of divorce. And so Joseph, as we'll see, is eventually getting this place of like, can I marry her? She's pregnant. We're betrothed. We haven't, we haven't done that yet. And so he's still trying to figure that out in his own soul. And so she's even wondering, like, am I going to have a husband to come alongside of me and be a good father who's going to be able to train this child up with me? Or am I going to do this on my own? She has all kinds of reason to worry, but instead what we see here is she worships. And so if she worships rather than idolatry, what does she worship? Who does she worship? She worships God. And she gives us, actually, in this, in this, this short, brief song, because it, it really is, it's written in a poetic way that would be expressed in bursting out of a song she shares this song with us that actually has 17 attributes, at least 17 that I could find within this. 17 attributes of who God is and why he is deserving of our worship. This is her moving to a top-down approach that instead of looking at just my circumstances around me, I'm going to be looking at who God is and what He is calling upon me and how He is going to be caring for me and taking care of me and providing for me through this season. And as you'll hear, or what you'll hear, are 17 attributes of God. These are literally echoes throughout the Old Testament. These are echoes of Hannah's song in the Old Testament. She's in the line of Miriam, Hannah, Deborah, women who worship. You're going to hear echoes as well of 1 and 2 Samuel, Deuteronomy, Job, the Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. This is a theological teenage worshiper, all right? She's amazing in this. She knows who God is, and she trusts the Scriptures. And when she could be worrying, she moves to worship. And here's what she says. Number one. So here's the 17 attributes. She begins with God is Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. What that means is that her God, he's in charge. He is above all, all other kings, all other kingdoms, Satan, demons, religions, her God, our God. He's above everyone and everything. There's, there's no one beyond him. 
This, this is of great comfort to her. As she looks again at her life and her future, what will happen with my husband, my reputation, my family, how will I feed this child, how will I raise God? What she says is, you know what? The Lord's in charge of this. The Lord's in charge of this. He, he's Lord. He's Lord. And what we know is that all authority in heaven on earth has been given to him. Like he's Lord. Not only is God in charge of all things, but the baby that she's carrying in her womb possesses all authority. That all of creation was created through Jesus. So that nothing in creation was created apart from him. Jesus holds all things together. So the baby that's being created in her womb is the same baby that ultimately is God that created her. I mean, like it, it blows your mind. What we believe is insane. But it's God's truth. It's God's truth. He's Lord. Number two, God is Savior. She says that her God is Savior. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Some would tell you that Mary was sinless. She wasn't. Mary was a sinner. She, in fact, notes uh, that herself, she needs a Savior. All right, if you're sinless, you don't need a Savior. Like Jesus didn't need a Savior. Jesus came to be Savior. And He came to save sinners. Savior means rescuer, deliverer, hero. How many of you watch a movie and it's dark and you're waiting for the hero to arrive and when the hero shows up, you're like, yes! Like that is literally the Bible in history. Like it is dark because of our sin. And Jesus, the hero, shows up and we're like, yes! Light. Like we have a deliverer. We have a savior. We, we couldn't, I mean, literally, in all of those movies, you always want to be the one with the cape. Right? But we're not. We're, we're, the, we're the people in the city running around like crazy as the buildings are falling. And we're going to die because of it. But the reality is, is it's all collapsing around us because of all of our sin. And the hero shows up and saves us. Jesus comes and saves us. Number three, God is omniscient. She says that God is what we'll call omniscient, which means just all-knowing. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humblest state of His servant. What she says there is that my God knows everything. My God knows that I'm young. My God knows that I'm poor. My God knows that I'm pregnant. My God knows that I don't have a lot of resources at my disposal. My God knows that my reputation is going to be destroyed. My God knows that my life is going to be difficult and complicated. My God knows all these things. He's looked upon my humble estate. Church, this is where your view of God is so incredibly important. So incredibly important. Some, of us, some say, oh, all religions teach basically the same thing. No, they don't. They don't. See, you can look at re religions that kind of land in the category of pantheism or panentheism, which is just like God is all, like all things. Everything just kind of works together and it is God. God is this immovable um, or, or just this kind of spiritual force, but not a being, not a person. Those would be vague spirituality. He doesn't pay attention to you. It's just an energy that endows you. But our God is personal. He's alive. He's living. He thinks. He feels. He speaks. He loves. He knows. God knows every hair on your head. Even the ones that are falling. The Bible says. God knows every longing of your heart. He knows every day of your life. God knows it all. And you know what? He pays attention. 
He pays attention to the humbleness of your estate. He's not overlooking that. He's a father who's attentive and detailed to all of his sons and daughters. That's what she says here. And the great thing is that like, no one pays attention to Mary. No one's paying attention to Mary. She's in Nazareth, not in Jerusalem. She's single, not married. She's young, not old. She's poor, not rich. What she says is, nonetheless, God knows me. God loves me. So, so it's not like us walking around with our capes in the wind that we're so mature and we're so intellectual and we're so successful that then God notices us. No, it's usually when you don't have any of those things or you're stripped of those things and you're in that humble estate. God knows you. He knows your mind. He knows your heart. He knows your anxieties. He knows these things. What are you absolutely distressed about right now? Here's a question. Have you, have you worshipped about it? I, I know you're worrying about it. But have you worshipped about it? Some say, I don't feel like worshipping. Here's how you get yourself into worship. This is just a little secret. You worship your way into worship. You worship your way into worship. You, you sing until you feel it. Like You don't wait to sing until you feel it. You sing your way until you feel it. You sing until you feel it. She worships. Our God is the Lord. He's the Savior. He's in charge. He knows us. He loves us. Number four, God is respectful. He's not only Lord, Savior, omniscient. He's respectful. She says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. It doesn't start that way, though, does it? Like for the next 30 years, roughly, of her life, there's going to be a reputation about her because people don't understand the virgin birth. There's going to be a reputation about it. Even when Jesus is old and during his ministry, people come to him and they say, you don't even know who your father is. What they are saying is, is that your mother was sleeping around. There's a reputation there, but our God is a God who gives worth, value, and dignity. He knows exactly who she is and he knows exactly what he has done. And he prescribes to her, he ascribes to her value, worth, and dignity to the point to where, again, all nations are going to look at her. All people, generations are going to look at her and say, she was blessed. She was blessed. She was not a harlot. She was not an adulteress. She was blessed by God. She was favored by God. Not, not without sin. Again, we're not, we're not going that route in blessing her from generation to generation to where we say that she was without sin. No, we know that she was a sinner. But what we also know is that God looked upon her humble estate and he blessed her by giving her grace. By giving her grace. For some of us, we might feel, um, based on your experience in life, that whether you've been abandoned, been betrayed, been beaten, who knows, been abused, dignity's been taken from you. But the God of the Bible, he's a respectful God. He gives dignity back. So much so that he calls us sons and daughters. Like we need to, on a, on a Father's Day like this, we, we need to really let that point drive home. That God doesn't just save us and then kind of like put us in the corner of his kingdom. That God saves us and adopts us, chooses 
us as sons and daughters to come home to Him as Father. So that one of the best kind of illustrations that I've seen in, in desiring to read God's Word is, like especially those with young children right now, if you don't read books before bedtime, they lose their stuff. There's just this weird like comfort and protection and love and security that they feel when they crawl up in your lap and you, you read to them before going to bed at night. And what God has done for us with the Bible is he's adopted us as sons and daughters. And when we read scripture, we're crawling up into the lap of God and we're sitting with him and we're leaning back against his, his chest and he is reading to us the history of the world and what he has done as a faithful father. How he has pursued us, how he has worked out everything and all the details of the mess to bring us into his presence to find safety and security and comfort and peace so that we can finally rest. We can rest well. Number five, God is mighty. He's mighty. When she says, he who is mighty, do you believe that God is powerful? Like this doesn't mean that, that everything goes perfect and it's always easy and you'll be a winner every single time. So just think happy thoughts. Like, that's not what we're talking about when we say God is mighty and powerful. But it does mean that no one and nothing can thwart God. No one and nothing can thwart God. He's powerful. He's mighty. He's the one who can do great things. Again, if you believe that, you'll stop worrying and you'll start worshiping. Because you know you, you are trusting the God who is mighty. Who, who does have all authority and all power. That then also moves into him being personal. Number six, God is personal. I love this. She says, he has done great things for me. Whom? What's the word? Me. She, she, she's making this personal because God is personal. Some of you who struggle with, with prayer, struggle with worship, struggle with celebrating who God is and what he's done, let me give you a secret that, is, that has benefited me personally. Writing. It could be journaling. It could be poetry, a song, or some way of getting your thoughts out and onto paper. I don't know if anyone knows this about me. It's, it's that personal. But if I'm struggling, I, I write poetry. Um, I think 99% of the people in this room are like, no idea. Would not have ever pegged you for doing that. Um, because it's just that personal for me. I, I write Poetry, I get my thoughts and my emotions out onto paper and it just helps me process. But as I do this, what I'm doing is I'm answering one question. What are the evidences of God's grace in my life right now? What are the evidences of God's grace in my life right now? I'm not just writing about the circumstances that I'm experiencing, but I'm asking the question, what are his evidence of grace even in the midst of those circumstances? And as I'm able to do that, I begin literally a collection of things that allow me to answer that question. What has he done for me? What great things has he done for me? And as I go back and read and I look through these, these moments of time, I'm able to see that even though this was a difficult time, I saw this grace. This evidence of God's goodness and grace towards me. I saw him move in this way. I think what we should do is just journal those things. Like, all times, what your mind is constantly just thinking and, and writing in the air is just everything that you're worried about. 
But when you begin to capture those thoughts and put them down into paper and then throw into it the evidences of God's grace, it begins to create that worry into worship. And now in these moments, I can write down, and as we celebrated a few weeks ago in the night of Ebenezer, we're able to look back at those moments and say, right now I'm experiencing a difficult time. I can look back and see where God was faithful. And he was faithful then, he'll be faithful now. He continues to do that. He has done great things for me. Number seven, God is holy. She says, holy is his name. God is not good and evil. He's good. He doesn't do evil. He only does good. One of the saddest things I've experienced is when people are coming to me with their lives in very difficult circumstances asking the question, is God punishing me? Is God punishing me? And and the answer every time, no. God, God is not punishing you. What God did for your sin is that he actually punished Jesus. For your sin. He punished Jesus. Past, present, future. All of your sins were punished on Jesus at the cross. God does not punish you. And you're like, well, how come I still experience um, uh, things that feel like punishment? Well, if, if, when you sin, there's still consequences for sin. But those are just merely consequences of our foolishness. It is not God punishing us. That would actually be unjust of God to punish us if he's already forgiven us of the sins that we've committed. He's just. He's forgiven. Now, he does discipline. He disciplines. But discipline is not punishment. Punishment is, I want you to experience pain for the purpose of you experiencing pain. Discipline is, you might experience some pain, but it's for the purpose of you maturing so that you can actually experience joy by not doing the dumb thing anymore. By not continuing to sin. For example, if you eat too much, you drink too much, and you spend too much, you'll be unhealthy and broke. You reap what you sow. But that's not God punishing you. God loves you. He does great things for you. Holy, altogether good. That's who he is. He's good and he is holy. He never does evil. Number eight, God is merciful. God is merciful. His mercy, she says, extends from generation to generation. You need to connect these two concepts together. God is merciful. That means he withholds from us justice that we deserve as sinners because he's placed it on Jesus. Because he's placed it on Jesus, he's able to withhold from us what we actually deserved, which was death. That's the reason why when you first came out of the womb sinning, you didn't die immediately. Because in his patience, he put all that sin on Jesus. And in that moment in your life, when you accept Christ and you believe in him and you trust him as Lord and Savior, that patience and all of your sin and all of his wrath that was towards you, he says, I've already placed it on Jesus at the cross. And so therefore, in my justice, I'm also able to forgive you right now. It's not him like just sweeping it under the rug. It's been paid for. It's been paid for. He is merciful towards us. Not only that, he's merciful from generation to generation. What that means is that God's going to be merciful with my children. Praise the Lord. 
that my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren. He's going to be merciful from generation to generation. Like there are some people in your life right now that, that your mercies run out, right? Like there are just some people in your life right now that you're like, I, I, I'm, I'm sick of them. And God says, I'm not. I will continue to extend mercy, not only to them, but to their children and to their grandchildren and to their great-grandchildren. Because God is a merciful God. She worships God for being merciful. Number nine, God is worthy. She says in verse 50 that God is worthy for those who fear him. What she's saying there is this is reverence. This is all. This is respect. This is submission. This is obedience. God deserves that. Who else are you going to trust? What else will you rejoice in? Who else is going to be the center of your life, the source of your identity, the igniting of your passion? Where is it going to come from? God is the only one worthy to be revered, to be respected, to be praised, to be honored, to be loved in this way. See, we become like that which we worship. You become what you worship. If, if you worship hamburgers, you're going to become looking like a hamburger. That's just truth. Like You, you become that which you worship. So if you worship, if you idolize um, um, some type of artist that's not pointing you towards Jesus, you're probably going to start dressing and looking like whatever that artist is. And you're probably going to start feeling like whatever those lyrics are expressing and emoting. Like you become that which you worship. The beauty in God is that when we worship Him, we become like God. The attributes that He expresses and reveals in His Son Jesus, we become like Him. He, he is conforming us to the image of Christ. We begin to think like Him, talk like Him, serve like Him, love like Him. All of those things happen, but He is worthy of our worship and we fear Him and Him alone. Number 10, God is powerful. She uses this analogy that He has shown strength with His arm. It's not that God will do everything we want Him to do, but God can do whatever He wants. That's the reality. That's what the psalmist says, that God sits in the heaven and does whatever pleases Him. Whatever it is in your life that is causing you to worry, God is more capable, competent, and powerful to handle it. He is. The, the reason why we are worrying is because we are not able, competent, capable, and powerful to handle it. If we were, we wouldn't worry about it, right? But we're worrying because it is beyond our ability. People, and, and this, this phrase is just so mishandled, but oftentimes people say, God will not give me more than I can handle. Bull. The entire Bible promises that God is going to give you more than you can handle so that you are dependent upon Him. If He only gave you what you could handle, who needs Jesus? We don't need a father. We don't need the spirit to strengthen us and encourage us and, and move within us. We don't need Jesus to forgive us of our sins if we're able to handle it ourselves. God absolutely is going to give you more than you can handle. That's life because we are created to be dependent upon him. And that dependence is actually the greatest joy you will ever experience. When you are depending upon the Lord and seeing him provide and be faithful in those moments... Worry goes out the window and you just simply live a life of worship. 
Like, that's the sweet spot. That's the sweet spot. That's what we're after. Number 11, God is sovereign. He's sovereign. This is beautiful. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. These are big words from this young girl in a rural town. She, she had no human rights. She had no civil rights. It, it is likely, again, that she uh, w- would not have been permitted to buy property or testify in court. On the scale of value, as a young, unmarried teenage girl, she was right above cattle and livestock and under the throne of Caesar. Like, she, she possesses no rights in this moment. But yet, she is professing that those who consider themselves proud, those who do have the rights, yeah, he's going to scatter you. Because the one that I serve is sovereign. I might not be sovereign. I might not have any rule or power. But he does. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones. God will ultimately create equality in this regard. What she says is Caesar's not Lord, God is. Caesar sits on a a cute little throne, but above that there's a much bigger throne. And my king rules over all kings, and his kingdom is over all kingdoms. He's the sovereign one. He gives me dignity. He gives me love. He gives me forgiveness. He gives me mercy. He's done great things for me, and he even knows the thoughts of people's hearts. And if they're proud, he takes them down. He humbles them. And if they're seated on thrones, ruling and reigning as bullies and thugs and abusers like some are, God strikes them down with the strength of his hand. And he defends the widow and the weak and the poor and the oppressed. And she's saying, and young women like me, we have a real king. We have a king that we can be proud of in our humblest state. Mary's confidence is not in Mary. Her confidence is in her God. See, God's going to establish a kingdom. He inaugurated it at the resurrection of Jesus. He is forwarding it through the preaching of the gospel and the expansion of of the church. And he will culminate it at the second coming of Jesus. You know what will happen? There's just going to be one throne. One throne. And Jesus is the one that's going to be sitting on it. This baby in her womb is the Lord of Lords. Is the Sovereign. And what she's essentially saying is, I'm going to be patient for that. I'm going to be patient for that. I look forward to that day. Number 12, God is gracious. i got to move through these quickly. I know we're running out. Number 12, God is gracious. He has exalted those of humble estate. What she's talking about here is that those who have been humiliated before her is, is literally a life of humiliation. What she's saying is is that for those who have been humiliated, God is gracious and will exalt those of humble estate. He takes those of us who have been destroyed and he gives us dignity. He takes those of us in the world's eyes. We have little, if any, meaning or value or, or purpose. And he bestows on us dignity and grace. Grace. God gives grace to the disgraced. Number 13, God is generous. She goes on to say, Um, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Like, have you ever been hungry? Like, for most Americans, um, it's, well, it's gluttony. That's the real issue. Um, Hungry usually for us means that, like, we went 10 or 15 minutes past our dinner time. Like, we're, like, we're hangry just because we didn't get there on time. Um, 
But we don't really experience the type of hunger that we see in Scripture. Where for her and her estate, like, again, from a small rural town, not a ton of resources, uh, it would not be um, uncommon for them to go days without food. To really know what hunger and thirst actually look like. And what God is saying here is that he has filled the hungry with good things. Like he is a generous God who is going to provide. This is why when you look in passages like Matthew 6, God is saying, like, don't worry about your life, what you will eat and what you will drink and what you will wear. Don't worry about those things. Look at the, look at the birds. They're not worrying about them. Like, like they, they, they don't know, but, but yet they are always fed. He's always taking care of literally every single being that is in existence. He's making sure that it is fed. Why should we? Like, we build our lives for those things rather than building our lives for the Lord. And what Matthew 6 is saying is, first seek the Lord and His kingdom, and guess what? All those things will be added to you. Like, don't worry about what you will eat and drink and, and, and what you will wear and the house that you will have and the job and careers that you will, like how you're going to make money and those things. Like if we first seek the Lord and his kingdom, if we're worshiping him, we get creation thrown in, as C.S. Lewis says. Like those things do come to us. It's not one or the other, but yet our world is just focused on worshiping creation rather than creator. Seek first creator because he's generous. He's going to make sure that he gives us what we need in order to lead a life and live a life of worship to him. Number 14, God is just. He doesn't just let people steal. He ultimately takes it away from them, redistributes, and ultimately in his kingdom, the hungry will be fed. Like he's a just God. The poor will be housed. The needy will be cared for. The marginalized will be protected. That kingdom ethic is supposed to live among God's people. That includes all of us. Like justice is not just what happens in the courtroom. Justice is us showing value, worth, and dignity to those who are in need. We are showing that they are equal to us as image bearers of the Lord. And so if they are without and we have, we are to distribute to them so that we can bless them and show that they are loved by God and that they also can be sons and daughters of God by coming to the Lord and trusting in Him. Like that's justice and that's what the Lord is demanding as a biblical view of justice is for us who have to be able to look around to those who don't because that is one of God's primary ways in which he is generous is through his people to give to others. To give to others. Again, this is, this is all in a song. This is a young woman singing out of her heart by the power of the Holy Spirit and she closes with these final words, her great song. And I would encourage you in light of these words to again just replace anxiety with just history here. Faithfulness. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her, that is Elizabeth, about three months and returned to her home. Number 15, God is humble. She says three more things about God and this one is that he's humble. He helps. God helps. God helps. Some of us feel like uh, we need to come to God asking him, God, what, what do you want me to do? But the truth is that he doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. We need him. And our God is a giver, not a taker. He's humble. 
He's willing to get involved in your life and your mess and your stuff and your needs and help you help us and help us to help one another. See, she looks at her life. She has two options. Anxiety, what will happen? Or history, what has God done? In moments of crisis and doubt, if you lean on anxiety, you'll start terrifying yourself about the future. What if Joseph leaves me? What if my parents reject me? What if they strip me and beat me in the public square? What if I'm a single mother? What if I can't afford to feed this baby? What what if we have complications in the pregnancy? What if instead she relies on history? She says, I heard about this guy named Abraham. He was old. His wife was barren. They couldn't have a kid. God gave them Isaac. Then came the nation of Israel. The culmination is my son, the savior of the world. I think God is good for this. God's good at his word is what she's saying. He's been working on this for several thousand years before me. And that's able to replace anxiety with history, worry with worship. Trust that God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It doesn't mean that everything is fixed. But you keep your head straight and your eyes fixed upon Jesus. And you'll be able to worship your way through it. 16, God is faithful she simply says he's faithful. He, is, he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. What she's saying is this. He, he's totally faithful. If he says he's one way, he's going to be that way. If he says he's going to do something, he will do it. If he says he, he has done certain things, he does those things. He's a faithful God. He's a faithful God. We need to hear that. We, we need to meditate on that day and night that he is faithful to us. Even when we're faithless, he's faithful. He's faithful. In 17, God is eternal. He's eternal. Some of you would even ask, okay, but, but when does the goodness of God expire? And she says that it goes on for how long? Forever. Like it comes back to any um, sandlot. Forever. Our God is good forever. Our God is Lord, Savior, all-knowing, respectful, mighty, personal, holy, merciful, worthy, powerful, sovereign, gracious, generous, just, humble, and faithful forever. Mary says, that's who my God is. That's who my God is. That, that's who has entrusted me with this circumstance that I am now living through. And instead of worrying about it, I'm going to worship the Lord for His goodness to me and that He has blessed me. With this. This is the song that Mary sings. And here's why we sing. We, we sing because our God sings. Our God sings. Like Zephaniah 3.17 says that in that day the, day, the day that Jesus comes back, it says that in that day God Himself will delight over you with a song. That He sings. Luke 15.10 puts it this way. That there is rejoicing before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Many have said and have kind of envisioned it that whenever a sinner repents and comes to know Jesus Christ, that the angels are on display just like singing and rejoicing. And yes, they are, but it's not just the angels who are doing it. It is God who is singing and rejoicing over the fact that a sinner is now a saint and has become saved by Jesus himself. God rejoices when we repent. God's happy when we repent. God sings when we repent. Simply just give your sin to God. Like Jesus died as our Savior. He forgives, He cleanses, He heals, He's merciful, He's good, compassionate, just, generous, and kind. He's holy and altogether good. And if, 
And he'll forgive you and he'll embrace and love you. And what we do is we tend to come in and we hear how sinful we are and we don't sing very much. We don't sing very much because we feel we're horrible, right? Like we feel that we're horrible and, and we are like to an extent, like we're, we're still sinners. But he's good and if we don't sing, it's because we're not yet thinking about him. We're still thinking about our sin. We're still thinking about us. We're thinking about our sin and not our Savior. We need to think about our sin. Then we need to begin thinking about our Savior. That's the reason why we do confession in here as a corporate gathering. is because we want to get that thing that is causing us worry and doubt and frustration. And it, we might be projecting it on the Lord. And we want to get it off of our consciences, off of our hearts, off of our, our, our anxieties. And we want to get those things out. We want to confess those things before the Lord. And we want to then look to the cross and we want to see that Jesus took it. And that he paid for it. And that it's gone. And that we're then free to live under the banner of sons and daughters of our great Father who is rejoicing over us, who is singing over us, who is delighting over us. Well, what that means is that He doesn't just love you, that He likes you. Like, again, for those who have, who have kids or who have watched the kids, and there, there, there are times where you delight over those kids, and there are times where you're like, you're annoying, get away from me. Because of what Jesus has done at the cross, God never looks at you and says you're annoying to Him. Never. His patience never runs out. And I need to hear that as a father. <laughs> His patience never runs out. We move from sin to song. And a spiritual rhythm that we do to help move from sin to song is communion. It's communion. Also known as the Lord's Supper. It's a spiritual rhythm where we bring our sin to Jesus and we remember that Jesus took our sin and he placed it on himself at the cross. And God in his goodness and his righteousness and in his anger, he crushed our sin by crushing Jesus. That's what he did. And Jesus dying on the cross, his blood being spilt for us, cleanses us. It's the payment for our sins that washes us clean. It's, it's the final moment where we're able to breathe and we're able to rest and we're able to start feeling that comfort and that peace that we're so desperately longing for. That's where the term clean slate comes from. It's a clean slate with the Lord. We start fresh and we start anew in Jesus because, again, three days later, he rises from the grave in a new glorified body. I mean, it's when we partake of communion, it's almost like a, a weekly. This isn't like a new salvation every single week, but it is almost like a new resurrected spirit every single week where we are being renewed daily by the Lord, by his word. That we are correcting and that we are rebuking and that we are literally just bringing our mess on a weekly basis. It's already forgiven, but we're still bringing it to him. Because we're still saying we're, we're still fumbling through this life. We're still figuring this out. We don't know what we're doing half the time. And that's being generous. We don't know what we're doing, Lord. 
but we want to bring it to you because we know that you're omniscient. We know that you're all-knowing. We know that you have looked upon our humble estate and that you are going to take care of us and that you're going to bless us. We can trust that. And so we want to move from this worry to this worship. And the only way that we can do that is by what we represent in communion, by bringing this junk to the Lord and knowing that it's been taken care of at the cross. And then we can walk away from there, risen to a new state and a new life that is worshiping and honoring Jesus above anything and everything else. We worship. We worship. So let's go ahead and stand. If you don't have the elements yet, you can go ahead and go back and grab them and come back to your seats. This is a spiritual supper. It's a spiritual meal. This is for our souls. And this is also for worship of Jesus. This is a time where we bring, again, just, just, just the junk, just the mess that we're walking through. And we bring it to the Lord and we say we trust you because we've already seen your faithfulness. The cross in its, in its own way is an Ebenezer. It's a stone that we can look back upon and we can see what Jesus has done for us in our muck and mire. He went to the cross. He crushed his body and he shed his blood so that we don't have to die and spend eternity without God. In his loving kindness, while we were still sinners, he died for us. And so this is a replacement. This is a substitution this is us looking at Jesus and saying, we thank you for the son that she was about to give birth to would go and die so that he could ultimately give her her own rebirth to become a daughter of the father. So let's remember and worship Jesus. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, do this in my body. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Partake of the wafer right now and remember that his body was crushed for you. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let the drinking of this, this juice be a reminder that his blood was shed to absolve all of your sin and the collateral damage of the anxieties that come with that. Be renewed now as we partake of this. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at